In Galatians 5:22, love and joy are placed at the top of the list of the fruit that Christ's Spirit can generate in our lives. What kind of love and joy does the Holy Spirit give? That's the question our Truth Encounter study leader Dave Wurtson addresses in today's study titled "Love, Sweet Love and Joy." The Apostle Paul wants to answer the question, what is love? Where can we get it? Who's got it? And how can we get it? Ephesians 5.22, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is, notice the big contrast, the fruit of the Spirit. We've just been talking about the actions of your sin nature. They're obvious. All of us, if we're honest, know what's wrong in our life and what's wrong in the world around us. It's obvious. These are things that produce destruction. Now the Apostle Paul changes gear. Look at the verse. It's real important. He says, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. I want you to notice he doesn't say that the works of the Spirit is love. You see, when we ask the question is, how are we going to get love? There's basically two approaches that we take to that, especially in the book of Galatians. One approach is a, a view that holds, if you can learn about what love is, if I can teach you all about love, if I educate you about love, then you're going to be very loving people. It's one of the dominant things that we believe. Education is the way that we discover what love is. That's what the Greeks believed. That's what the Romans believed. The Apostle Paul says, no, it's not going to work that way. You're not going to be able to find love by just learning all the information about love. How many of you know someone that could define love, can talk about it being sacrifice, commitment, um, being willing to give of yourself for others, being unselfish, you know, being faithful, and all of those things? How many of you know someone that knows all that in their head, but they don't love you at all? Anybody know anybody like that? Sure. In other words, some of the people that lecture the most about love, that have more information about love, aren't loving people. One of the dominant influences in our own culture. How many of you have ever heard of William Bennett's uh, Book of Virtues? It's a great book. It's about that thick. You can learn all about the virtues in a, in a very classic Christian way. You learn all about this Book of Virtues. And the idea is that we're going to train you, going to teach you all of these character traits, and then you're going to be virtuous. The problem is that you can't get there by just having the fact in your head you need something more. You need something really deep inside of you. The second answer in the book of Galatians about where do we get love, where do we get joy, which are the first two fruit of the Spirit, is we're going to find it in religion. In other words, the priest comes to us and says, if you'll keep all the religious holidays, you know, if you can get real religious and go to church regularly, and if you'll tithe regularly, and if you'll obey the, the religious holidays that we set up for you, uh, if you go to confession, if you, you know, if you, uh, if you go out on mission trips, if you do all of those things, then you're going to be a loving person. In other words, if you're religious, if you obey all these rules. The first century Jews said if you obey the laws of Moses, if you keep the Sabbath, if you get circumcised, then you're going to be a person of character. How many of you have ever met someone who's really religious and doesn't have any love? I'll never forget when I was in the Holy Land, right in the place at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, it's right at the place where Jesus supposedly was crucified. You go up on this mountain, and then you get down on your knees, and there's a, there's a piece of glass right there, and then there's a hole that actually is supposed to be the hole where they put the cross of Jesus down there. There was a pilgrim when I was there the last time, and the pilgrim was weeping because he felt this was the place where my Savior died for me. Very moved, you know, very uh, much worshiping. And this priest came up, 
and just grabbed a hold of the pilgrim and said, you need to get away from here. You need to get away from here. Don't you know that, that, that we're going to have a big procession here? And the pilgrim kind of wiped the tears away, and, he kind of, and, and the, the priest grabbed the hold and said, you need to move faster, and he threw him right into me. He bumped into, into Amy, uh, one of the girls that was with us from our church, bumped into her and said, you all get away from here. Don't you know that the bishop is coming? And then about five minutes later, they had this great big procession, and they threw smoke everywhere, you know, you know had incense, and they threw water around things and stuff. And I, it was such an incredible contrast. Here's the place where Jesus supposedly died, and here's a man that's really moved by that, and yet religion is not focused at all on that. We've got to get ready for the bishop. We've got to get ready for our ritual. We've got to get ready for our performance. The Apostle Paul says you're not going to get there by just having the right ideas in your head. You're not going to get there by just having this religion that you're seeking to obey. What does he say? Where are we going to get it? It has to be the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Notice singular, fruit. What the, what the Lord is saying is that the Holy Spirit, when you received Jesus in your life, the Holy Spirit came to live in your life. And the moment he came to live in your life, he generated all the power, all the future of love is present the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. You see, what I need today is I need spirit. I need to know that there's going to be a, a continual infusion of power so that I can keep loving you, so that I can keep loving Mary, so I can keep loving my kids. How can I know that my love won't run out of gas? That's a big question that a lot of us are wrestling with. How do you keep love going in your marriage? How do you keep love going in friendships? How do you keep love going in a church family? The Apostle Paul answers with, it's the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the holy divine presence of God, the moment you receive the Lord Jesus, he came to live inside of your life. And if you'll submit to him today, if you'll fully let him control your life, then one of the things that he does is he starts to slowly but surely over the course of your lifetime make you a loving person. So one of the things you need to ask yourself today, as I look back over this week, have I been a lover? As I think about my actions during the past week, have I been a lover? The second question I want you to ask yourself is, have you been a joyful person this week? Has your life, and I'm not saying that you didn't cry this week. We're going to talk about how joy isn't divorced from suffering. But deep in your soul, is there joy? And if you answer the question, no, you know, I, as I think about my life this week, I've been very selfish, that I've been very much filled with anger towards other people. I feel a lot of bitterness in my soul. Then what spirit's controlling your life? We need to get really honest about that. Every one of you are controlled by a spirit this morning. Every single one of us are. And you say, well, how do I know which spirit's controlling your life? Well, if you've seen some evidence of love in your life this week, if you've seen some evidence of joy in your life, then those are objective evidences that you are being controlled by the Holy Spirit. If you've seen the opposite of that, and if I've seen the opposite in my life, then someone else is controlling it. Because the Apostle Paul is saying that if we walk in the Holy Spirit, that he will generate this kind of fruit in our life. And you can't, it, it, the, the fruit is a very important idea because I can't grow peaches. Dave Wurtson doesn't have the power to take a stick and make peaches grow. 
In other words, I can plant a peach tree in the ground and I can water it and I can give it fertilizer and I can try to guard it from the elements and everything. And then the miracle happens as the living God generates the incredible sweet taste of peaches and the fruit of the peach. That's why the Apostle Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the same thing in your own life. The Holy Spirit planted a new life, a new spiritual eternal life inside of your life when you believed in him. It's important for you to cultivate and and to guard that new life. It's important to read the Word of God. It's important to pray. It's important to be submitting your will to the Holy Spirit. And then the incredible miracle takes place, not because you worked for it, not because you strived to get it, but because you opened your heart to receive it, you start to become a lover. But what is this love? What is this love? Well, in the ancient world, they would have answered it just the way you just saw And it's interesting, in the Lord's first century world and Paul's first century world, they used the words for love the same way that we use the word for love. Only in Greek, they did have kind of a breakdown. One of the words for love was eros, and that's where you would get, you know, love is not infatuation. Love is not lust. The word eros can mean the beauty of marriage, sexual love. It can also be used for the incredible lust and the evil of sexual immorality that we talked about. So one of the ways that the Greeks talked about love, which is the way we talk about love in English right now, in your society, if I mention the word love and says, I'm going to give you a lecture on love, a lot of you would automatically jump and say, well, we're going to talk about sex today. Because in our post-Freudian world as Americans, when you mention the word love, you automatically think of sex. And I want to understand that the New Testament never uses the word eros. That's very interesting. The New Testament never uses the word eros. It doesn't mean that it's bad. The Holy Spirit says marriage is honorable in all things. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, so the Scripture is not against sex at all. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says that we need to fulfill our marital obligations to one another. It's a great obligation to fulfill. But the New Testament never uses eros. There's another Greek word. There's the word storge. And it's the word that stands for your family affection. One of the strongest places that you receive love is in your family, and you have a natural affection for one another. You like to get together. It lasts for a little while until you're crammed in the house too long during a holiday, and then it's kind of the affection goes away. But you all understand the love of affection, and that word is used. That word is never used in the New Testament either, which is interesting. There's another word that means friendship. And it's the love of, your, of, of sharing ideas, of sharing experiences, of, of traveling together, all of those things. And that word is used. It's the word from philao. It means like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And so that word is used. In fact, Jesus said, I don't call you my servants anymore, but I now call you my friends. Because I want to share my designs, my will. I want to share my life with you. I want to share my plans with you. And the Lord Jesus says to you that I am your friend and I want you to be my friend. And the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And so part of the love that he produces is that you begin to feel Jesus is my friend. That's why in Promised Land we train our little kids that Jesus can, can become your forever friend because he died on the cross for you and because he rose again. If you'll invite him to come into your life, your sins can be forgiven and Jesus can become your forever friend and he can be a philo lover to you, a friendship lover. The final word that's used for love in the New Testament is a word that you all have heard, agape love. It picks up on the, the Old Testament word, which is the word haha, which means to choose. It's interesting that the Hebrew word is used fundamentally of a choice. So one of the things about love, one of the constituents of it is it has to do with choices. 
That which you love, you choose to get near it. You choose to participate in it. You choose to be joined with it. So one of the things in love is choice. But the reason you make that choice is because a a mysterious thing happens in a way. In other words, that there's something inside of you that that moves you to want to be close to that person, to be attached to that person. That's part of love. And the incredible wonder of the universe is that the Scripture says that the eternal God wants to be attached to you like that. He wants to love you like that. And when I ask the Apostle Paul, well, Paul, when you talk about how do you define love? How do you, you know, give substance to love? How do you, where do I find it? And the Apostle Paul, I think, would respond with our key verse in the book of Galatians. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, because the Apostle Paul takes this idea of love and he says, where do I get it? He says, at the cross. He says, who do I get it from? I get it from Jesus. And how do I get it from Jesus? He says, because by allowing the spirit of Jesus to live inside of you. This is the key verse. In fact, it just is the core of Paul's thinking in this book, and it's so important. Look at it. Galatians chapter 2, let's begin with verse 19. It says, for through the law, that's the religious thing, through the trying to be religiously obedient, obeying the law of Moses, I died to the law. That way wasn't going to work. And so I had to come to the place in my life where I died to that law so that I might live to God. This is the point. The Lord just wants to set you free to live for God. In our own human strength, we live for ourselves. If you just fall off a cliff today and do what you naturally do, you will live for yourself. Your whole culture tells you to live for yourself. And what the Apostle Paul says that love begins and ends with God. It's got to be about him. Why is that so? Because he's the lover. He's the one that gave you life. And what, what the scripture is saying is that the eternal attribute of God is that he's a lover. And so love begins and ends by connecting with God. He says this in the, in the next verse. Look what he says in verse 20. But I have been crucified with Christ. And that's hard. None of us want to be crucified. None of us want to die to ourselves. In fact, you all hang on to yourself. You just grab a hold of it like crazy. And you're doing everything you can. You know, it's, it's about me. And I'm going to make sure that I get my rights. And I'm going to make sure that I get out of this relationship what I want. And, and I'm going to be sure that, you know, my friends do what I want them to do. And just stop and think of your thought pattern during this past week. We naturally just groove on I thoughts, big I ego thoughts. The Apostle Paul says we need to come to the place where he says, I am crucified with Christ. And specifically what he means is we need to die to our old way of life, to our sin nature. We need to die to that. He's not saying that you as a person are not valuable. In fact, the scripture says that you are made in the image of God. So something that we need to think really clearly of is that God loves you as an individual, which means that you have eternal worth. It means that if you're sitting there going that I'm nothing and, you know, I don't have any value, that you're wrong. Because God says to you, I'm your daddy, and I created you. And so you have eternal worth. So there's nothing that, that, that there's, there's, it's not that your I, your ego is invaluable. It's very valuable. It's eternally valuable. The problem is that outside of Christ, that we make wrong choices, and so we're tainted, and we become dead in our sins. That's what the scripture really teaches And that's why we need to be crucified with Christ. Jesus needs to take this old corpse of our old way of life, our sinful desires, where we try to meet our needs for love outside of God. We need to let Jesus nail that to the cross. That's what he means. I am crucified with Christ. 
In fact, when we're born again spiritually, God works in your life and he joins you with the cross. He joins you and you die with Christ. The verse goes on and says, nevertheless, I live. Look at it. Nevertheless, I live. In fact, the Greek just literally goes, but I'm living. I'm living. It doesn't even have a contract. It says, says, I am crucified with Christ. I'm living. I live. And then it adds, it clarifies, but it's not me that's living, but it's Christ living in me. That's another way of saying is, be controlled by the Spirit. Be controlled. Let the Lord control your life. As I think about the controls of your own life today, if you're not a lover, it's because you're at the wheel of your life. You're controlling your life. You're doing your thing. And you're not focused on Jesus letting him control. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And I want you to underline, not I, not I, not I. This week, one of the most important things you need to think about, and what I need to think of, it's not I, it's not I, it's not I. Your culture tells you it's I, it's I, it's I. It's the big I. Every one of us, we live, and you're being constantly told that's what the meaning of life is. The Apostle Paul says it needs to be not I, but Christ. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, by dependence upon the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. So you say, well, Dave, how do you define love In the New Testament, I define it like this. Love is being willing to sacrifice yourself and even give your life for those that you love. And the ultimate expression of that is when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And that's how all of you got born again by responding to that story. I remember when I was a kid, One of my favorite stories, I told you a few weeks ago about my buddy, Ray Carlson, that directed the World of Life Ranch, and and I told you about his fall into immorality and then how the Lord restored him. And I share with you how he was one of the most powerful evangelists I've ever met. And one of his favorite stories was was about Renee and Bruce. Renee was a, a Canadian girl, and she lived back several years, you know, before the days of modern transportation. It was in the early days of Canada. It was very close to where I was raised as a kid, up in the mountains, and there's big woodlands, you know, tremendous forests. And she lived in the days where a man could make a living by trapping. And her dad would come in. In fact, like one day, his dad came home from a trip, and he would go out for weeks on end. And he would trap beaver, and he would, he would trap uh, all different animals. He would hunt for deer, and he'd get all these furs, and he'd come back in. And after being out in, the, out in the woods for just months on end. And Renee loved her daddy, and one of the biggest things was when her daddy came home. So one day, you know, his daddy comes home, and he takes off his big deerskin jacket, and he grabs a little girl, and he, and he hugs her, and he loves her. And in this family, as her daddy loved her, he would talk to the mom about, you know, how much he missed her and all that. And he would also pat this great big Newfoundland dog named Bruce on the head. He said, Bruce, you did a great job. You took care of my family. And this great big gigantic Newfoundland dog with that great big coat of hair because it's cold up in Canada would just wag its tail and would lick Renee's daddy's hand. And Renee's daddy would be home for a few days. And, man, he would spend all kinds of time with her, and he would enjoy her. And they would have all kinds of good times together, and they would go down and go fishing and do a lot of cool things. But then it would be time after a short time, it would be time for Renee's daddy to take off again because he had to make a living for his family. So one night, 
when Renee knew that her daddy was going to leave early in the morning, Renee made a decision. And so early in the morning, she heard her dad start to put on his great big knapsack that he carried all of his stuff in. And he, he grabbed his rifle, put on his big deerskin jacket. Renee listened to him. And he listened to him quietly open the door of their cabin and begin to move toward the village. And she knew he always went the same way, down the center of the village, would get to the extremities of their little uh, place where they live, their little town. And then he would start to move out through the fields that were cultivated by the town and he would be into the woods. So Renee knew she had some time. She quickly got her little stuff together, grabbed her jacket, and she took off very quietly outside the cabin door. And she saw her dad way up the streets. And it was really fun. It was kind of like playing hide and seek. You know, she'd see her great big dad with that great big, you know, rifle and everything up ahead of him, great big guy. And she could see him and she'd run and stay just far enough behind him so that he didn't see her. They got to the edge of town, started going through the fields. And man, she's going, you know, it's a little bit harder in the fields, but she's staying really low just behind her dad, just far enough out of sight. And then he moved up into the woods. And at first, it was really exciting the woods because she'd be able to run to a tree and hide and then look and see her dad. And then she'd run to another tree so, that he was, so she was sure she wasn't seen. And man, there was her dad. But after doing that for about an hour, suddenly she ran to the next tree and she looked. And her dad was, couldn't find him. So she ran to the next tree, ran to the next tree, ran to the next tree. Couldn't find him. And she's saying as a little girl, she's man, what in the world am I going to do? I'm out here in the woods. And if you've ever been in the woods and you don't have a compass, you have no idea where you are, you just start going around in circles. So Renee's out there in a great big Canadian forest, doesn't know where daddy is. She starts calling out, daddy, daddy, daddy. She's yelling, daddy, daddy, daddy. But her father had great big strides. He was way out in front of her. He couldn't hear his precious daughter. It started to get dark. Renee's starting to get scared. Man, she'd run around, and, and she'd end up right back at the same place where she started. She'd run in another direction, and she had no idea where she was. It started to get really dark, and the sun went completely down in the forest. It gets dark pretty quick. And Renee huddled up by a tree, and she was just huckering down, you know, just shivering as it started to get cold when suddenly she felt this furry thing right beside her. Ah, just scared her to death. And she reached down, and it was her big Newfoundland dog, Bruce. It didn't take very long for Renee's mom, like all of you moms, to get really upset. And she went to her friend's house. She went to another friend's house. Have you seen Renee? Have you seen Renee? Have you seen Renee? Have you seen Renee? And they're all, you know, she's just running all over the town. Finally, she got frantic. Kind of like when Mary and I lost Josh at the State Fair of Texas, man. She was going everywhere, you know. Where is, where is Renee? Where's Renee? Nobody knows where Renee is. Then she started putting it together. My husband left early this morning. My little girl always wants to go with him. She's taken off after her dad. And the men in the, in the village got together. And they started a search party, and they started looking for Renee, and they looked in those fields, and then they started to head in the woods, not having hardly any idea. It took them all night to be able to find Renee. And the next morning, early in the, in the early before sunrise, just before sunrise, as the, the sun just begins to put its light, one of the hunters hollered out, I found her, I found her, and they all rushed 
And there they saw Renee. And she was sleeping. And she had her head on her great big Newfoundland dog named Bruce. And they woke her, and they saw she was fine. But then the search party looked around, and they saw a great big wolf over there. They saw another great big wolf over there. They saw another great big wolf over there, and they began to put together, and they looked at Bruce. They saw great big gashes in his side. And they saw his legs had been bitten repeatedly. They realized what happened. Late that night, as Renee snuggled down with her great big Newfoundland dog, a big group of timber wolves, a pack of timber wolves, came in the forest. And they started getting closer and closer towards Renee. And that big Newfoundland dog started taking on those wolves. And one by one, they attacked him, and they bit him, and they hurt him. But he wheeled, and he protected his little girl. And finally, the last timber wolf was down, and the rest of the pack ran away. And Renee snuggled down with her great big Newfoundland dog, and she fell asleep because she was safe. But her big Newfoundland dog gave his life could he love that little girl. If you go to that city in Canada today, you can go to the heart of the city where it was founded. It's no longer a little town. Now it's a great big city. You see a great big monument to this big Newfoundland dog named Bruce who gave his life for his mistress, for the little girl that he loved. That story makes a lot of you, I can just watch you, you're, you're, you tear up. Why do you do that? Because you know that real love isn't meeting your needs. Real love is being willing to give your life. Scripture teaches no, no greater love is this than when a man gives his life for his friends. No greater love is this, but Jesus gave his life for his enemy. That's why the Apostle Paul said, you want to know what love is? Love is at the foot of the cross. It's the Savior that took the pack of wolves, Satan, that wants to destroy your life, wants to hurt you, wants to take you down to eternal death. And the blessed Son of God took those timber wolves, took the ultimate timber wolf, Satan, on for you. And on the cross of Calvary, he took the stripes, he took the bites, he took the pain, he took the suffering that we deserved. And Jesus poured out his life here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a covering for our sins. We're born again by responding to that love. We have joy in our life. We have joy in our life as we celebrate the incredible forgiveness because the incredible story of Jesus doesn't end with the sadness of death. The story of Jesus moves from that sadness to the incredible celebration as Jesus rose again from the dead. In the Old Testament, they talked about, I mean, they talked about joy and when they celebrated being delivered out of Egypt. We celebrate joy because we've been delivered from our sins at Mount Calvary and in the resurrection. 
In the Old Testament, they would have these great big Sabbath rests. They would have a rest every week, and they would celebrate. There'd be great joy in these Jewish families because the Lord had given them rest. We celebrate, and we can celebrate every day because we have the rest of our souls, the rest of forgiveness, because Jesus has come in. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What is it? It's Jesus, the ultimate lover, giving himself even unto death so that we might live. The more you go back to Calvary, the more that you acknowledge the love that Jesus poured out for you, the more that you're going to be able to pour yourself into sacrifice and the giving of yourself in the little things that you do. As you celebrate the forgiveness, that you realize my heavenly daddy has accepted me, I'm not going to be his child forever and ever and ever. The Apostle Paul over and over again talks about God the Father being the source of joy and the Father of all joy and the one that can bring us joy. He prayed to the Father saying, may the God of joy, may the God of peace give joy and peace to those that he's praying for. It's just a major theme in the New Testament. But you've got to decide where you're going to try to find love, where you're going to try to find joy. And I want to challenge you from the depths of my heart, what we need in our church family is individual to say, I'm going to find love in the cross. I want you to stop and think about it. What are some evidences of love? What are some evidences of joy in your life? As we were sharing about this at the Wednesday night study, Sam Rogers, we were talking about, you know, I was, we were looking at some of the false views of love, and I was sharing how... Um, a lot of people come up to me and they say, well, I just don't love him anymore. I don't, just, I don't love her anymore. And in our society, that trumps everything. If a husband tells me, well, I don't love her anymore, then that's like winning the hand. That means he can end his marriage vows. It means he can leave his kids. It means he can find someone else that he can love because the worst thing you could ever do in life is to stay in a relationship where you don't have love. But before you make that statement, you ask yourself, what do I mean when I say I don't love him anymore? I don't love her anymore. As a husband and wife, you need to say, are you saying I don't sacrifice for her anymore? I don't keep covenant commitments towards her anymore or towards him anymore. I don't, I'm not willing to die to myself anymore. That's what love really is. What you're saying when you say I don't love her anymore is I don't, I don't have these gooey, sentimental, they're very powerful feelings, but I don't have puppy love for anymore, and I want to have puppy love for someone else. That's often what we're saying. And in your society, you're told that's what love is. It isn't that. In the midst of that discussion, Sam Rogers says, I just want you to know, I have been married well over 30 years. And he says, I still love holding Anne's hand. And he said, I still love looking in her eyes. I just love the way that she, she moves her lips in a certain special way. And he said, I just want you to know that when I hold Anne in my arms, it still makes me excited. And then he said this, and God is the source of my love. And God is the source of my love. And God's the source of love that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. I want you to stop and think of all the loving things. Like last week, Eric shared when we dedicated Little Meg. Eric told you a story of love. He and Devin shared how you were there when they started having trouble on that birth and how Meg's 
was really had some life-threatening things that were really scary. And you all gave love. You sacrificed. Some of you drove. A lot of you sacrificed and made meals. That's what love is. Don't throw that away easily. It's the, all those little things, little tiny things that add up. Little sacrifices that we make from the depth of our heart because the Spirit of God is filling our life. Love is the foundation from which all the other fruit flow. And the first one it generates is joy. And so I want to pray that this week, that as a church family, that we're going we're to stop and realize the incredible forgiveness that we have on the cross. We have to celebrate the incredible victory that we're ultimately going to have in Jesus. And that we're not going to feel I have right, just the right ideas about love in my head. We're not going to feel just that I have some idea of what joy ought to be. I want it to really happen. And that's what Paul is saying. It can really happen as we let the fruit of the third person of the Trinity, Dave, this morning can have real love and real joy in his heart. Not because I worked for it. Not because I earned it. Not because I'm so smart and I could figure it out. But because I received it from the ultimate source of love. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the fact that you shared with us that you wanted to be connected with us, that you gave your son to die for us even when we were your enemies. Lord, in the story we told, this big Newfoundland dog was willing to give his life for someone that he loved very much that was kind to him and took care of him and everything else. And Lord, we're just the opposite. We often reject you. We're often indifferent towards you. And yet we thank you that love is a choice that you've made to be close to us, to keep coming after us. I'd ask you, Lord, that we would once again think about what spirit is controlling my life. How am I defining what I think love is? What does the cross mean in my life? Is it really making a difference? What about the resurrection? Father, as we leave here, I pray that you would take this group, help them to reach out to brothers and sisters that have moved away from love, that have started moving into self. I pray, Lord, that you would take them out this week and that they would love enough to go after straying brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters that need to be picked up and nurtured and cared for. I'd ask you, Lord, that the love and joy that the Holy Spirit wants to generate in our life would not just be something that we talk about in the teaching of your word, but I'd ask you, Lord, to be something that we actually live in the concrete reality, the little things, not just the big things, but just the little things that we do every day. I just pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters would be filled with love, filled with joy, because they're submitting to the control of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.